Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. I'm delighted to be joined this time by one of the most important political scientists in Britain, Professor Jane Green. Amongst Jane's many achievements, she's co-director of the British Election Study, which is to British elections what wisdom is to cricket or Oxford is to dictionaries. That is an absolutely essential source for anyone wanting to understand what has happened in our elections and why. Uh, welcome to the show, Jane. Thank you so much. Let's start with the British Election Study, or the BES, as it's known to its friends. Um, <laughs> what makes the BES so special? Because it is the bedrock of a huge proportion of the political science research and hence also wider public understanding of elections. So what makes the BES so special? Thank, yeah, it's, it's a really important investment and it's currently funded by the ESRC. And one of the reasons I think it's so important is that it's, it really is a community resource. So it's really something that everybody in academia who's interested in studying elections uses, it's freely available, um, it's really comprehensive, but also outside of academia, we make the data available, you can anyone can download it. If you even don't want to use any statistical software, you can go online, you can use it. So, you know, it's a really important investment that is used very, very, very widely. In terms of its quality and its importance, there's a few things I think, and you know, when we took it over, you, you kind of get this sense of kind of history of real privilege because it's been running since 1964. And that means that this is the only real source where you can look in an in-depth mm. way at change over time. So if you want to understand how the electorate has responded to these major, major changes and shifts you know, in society and in politics over an enormous time span, then you use the British Election Study. Also, those over time surveys since 1964, they've, they've all been post-election random probability surveys. So that really is the, the highest quality data that you can get because you're not using convenience samples, telephone banks or people that have already opted into doing surveys. You're, you're literally taking a random sample of the population, doing everything you possibly can to make sure those people answer the questions in the survey. And so that's really helpful. That's incredibly important for making sure you really do get an accurate snapshot of the wider electorate. And, and then I think also... Just before you move on from that, oh. just to dive into that random sampling point a little bit. Um, so yeah. for people who are not so familiar, I mean, things like telephone pol polls will dial yeah. random phone numbers, but obviously lots of people either don't answer or refuse to take part in the survey. The, what the BES does is it tries really hard to track down the randomly selected people, doesn't it, to make sure it's a properly random sample, not just who's keenest to talk to a pollster. Exactly, exactly. And, and it's also in person. Um, the important part of it is that it's a random probability sample, but the person part means that literally an interviewer will go and try many times at a door, um, at a household, to try to ensure that that person takes part in the survey and can explain how important it is that they've been chosen literally, you know, and that random process. Um, so, so yeah, so it's a, so the reason that's so important is that you get that more accurate snapshot of the electorate. And then of course, all of the other kinds of survey collection can then look at the BES, look at the distributions on the variables. So, okay, with this random sample, what does the electorate look like? How many people have high political interest or not, you know, it's much easier for understanding people who aren't engaged in elections or who might not be voting 
who maybe wouldn't opt in necessarily into say online polls. And so that data can then be used to improve the quality of all of those other polling methods. And that sort of helps everybody. I think, I think the other thing that's really exciting about the election study now is that increasingly those post-election random probability samples have been supplemented by very large panel studies. Um, a panel study is a study where you follow the same people over time. And so that one person gets interviewed, let's say they get interviewed after the Brexit referendum. Okay, well now we know they voted leave or remain and what they think about politics. Well, actually, we can then track that person and say, well, track, <laughs> track sounds a bit sinister, but we could look at their responses at the time and we can see how they voted in subsequent elections like the 2017 general election and then the 2019 general election. And with that, you can really get the sense of dynamics, like what are people responding to? How is that switching between elections, between different periods of the survey? What is that motivated by and what's that, you know, what, what is that leading to in terms of electoral change? So, so that's a really important part of the BES as well. And, and I guess what is particularly helpful with that is that perhaps somewhat surprisingly, people are not very good at remembering their previous vote choice, are they? So that with normal opinion polls, if you ask yeah. the traditional, you know, example of this that affects my own party, the Liberal Democrats, is that, you know, is that after a general election, if you poll people and say, who did you vote for at the general election? It's very common for fewer people to say they voted Lib Dem than actually mm. did that there. And sometimes if the election has gone badly, you can understand why that might be. But actually that pattern has been the case, even when it's been a really good Lib Dem result, that people are quite forgetful and therefore having them in the panel means you can get a more honest and accurate record yeah. aren't you, of how people have switched. Yeah, so what we're doing is immediately after an election, so you'd have maybe the, the first two weeks after the election, people will be asked how they voted and obviously recalls could then. I think, I think the other thing that happens over time is that people are not necessarily not remembering and they're not lying, but they're giving you a sense of, well, I, well, I'm the kind of person now who would vote for this party. They're trying to give you a sort of an accurate picture, I think, sometimes. But, you know, the other thing there is that we've had lots of elections. So if you asked me how, and I've moved um, in this period twice. So if you, if you asked me how I voted in 2015, 2017, 2019, I'd have to really think about yeah. it. Uh, you know so so people can be forgiven for not remembering i think yeah and you've mentioned the sort of the big you know face-to-face -face random probability survey that bs does but there's other tracking as well that, B, that bs does doesn't it so I've, I've noticed that i remember particularly during for example the 2005 general election mm -hmm. um the bs actually published daily tracker data yeah. which at a time when yeah. other pollsters were not doing that provided a fascinating insight into the how most big events didn't really move public opinion but just occasionally <laughs> there was something again one one example in the 2005 election was the the press conference at which unfortunately charles kennedy then leader of the democrats was ill and had a just complete disaster of a press conference and you could see that was one of the few things that that actually cut through now i know the bs doesn't publish that sort of daily tracking data during elections or at least hasn't more recently but there is lots of other data that you're gathering as well isn't there so what we do um in the campaign period so this is the, you know the official campaign yeah. once it's been kicked off and launched right through to the election day we do we take a, a sort of subset of our respondents so we we would have interviewed them before that period 
sort of what we call the pre-election wave of the study. And then we'll say, okay, let's take a subsample of those people every day and let's ask them a short survey, relatively short survey, every single day. Um, and then we're going to interview them at, at the end after the election to find out how they voted. And we try very, very hard to maximise how many people are taking part in those three surveys. And, and you're, you're exactly right. I mean, what, it, what that allows you to do is, you know, sort of look at the aggregate. So, you know, on the averages, how volatile was that particular election itself? But of course, the other really important thing it allows you to do is say, well, okay, beneath the surface, how many people were actually switching during that election campaign? And, and we got loads of questions in the survey about leader evaluation and all those other sorts of things that we can use to say, well, it looks like it was the changing evaluation of Charles Kennedy, or it would look um, more recently in the 2017 general election. Theresa May, Jeremy Corbyn, their leader evaluations really changed quite significantly, very significantly during that election campaign. And there was a lot of switching in that campaign. And so you can kind of look at the timings of when people have made up their minds and what basis they've made up their minds. But you're right, we don't release that data during the election itself. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that, um, you know, because we're publicly funded, it's, we're very, it's very important that we're seen to not be doing anything, putting anything out there that might influence the election. Or <laughs> so pe people like me who used to love that data and publicise it are probably partly to blame then for it no longer being published. I feel I yeah, should apologise I mean, then. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, we have really mixed feelings about this yeah. because I think, you know, any information, transparency, mm. is in public's interest, but it's, it's a requirement. So yeah. that's something that, that we have to do. And, um, but the other reason is that it takes us quite a long time actually to, I mean, compared to a pollster who's putting something out in a very, very short time frame. It's very important that we put high quality data out, that we're not putting out, we're not grabbing headlines, we're not in the business of trying to promote the British election study, we're in the business of trying to understand the electorate and provide an academic and a public service. And I don't think that service is really advanced by kind of rushing data out where we haven't yet. <laughs> haven't provided documentation we haven't got the appropriate weights on the data yet so so we do quite a lot of checking to make sure that once we do release data it's reliable it's accurate people can trust it and one of the bits of checking you do is after the election isn't it is against the marked register so you know one of the big problems for pollsters normal pollsters is this question yeah. of turnout and people over-reporting how likely they are to vote in an election and so pollsters come up with all sorts of models and sometimes those models save them and make their figures more accurate but occasionally the models actually end mm. up misleading and making the polling a lot less accurate which is what happened particularly in one recent general election but what the BS does is actually you don't just take people at their word do you you check against the official records after an election as to who has actually voted or not yeah, and that's something that we primarily do with the in-person data. Yeah. Um, and it's an important exercise because that, you know, I was referring when, when I was talking about the random probability sample. It's very, very important if we're thinking about disengagement, not voting in politics, alienation from parties, you know, why people feel angry and they're not, they're disinclined to vote in elections. And so it's really important that we interview those people. Um, and then it's really important that we get an accurate assessment of who's voted and who hasn't. And so that is an exercise that we do in combination with the Electoral Commission who 
um, who request data from the marked registers, request the marked registers for us, and then we do that linking exercise with the BES data. Of course, we never, you know, this is, this is kind of anonymous. You're doing this on postcodes and then you're linking up the data and, and essentially just providing a variable that says, yes, has this person, this person said they turned out to vote, but this is the variable that we're going to apply to this and whether we can verify that they did or not. So how honest overall are people in telling a pollster whether or not they voted? What's what's the sort of the broad uh, picture? Has it has it reinforced your faith in humanity or undermined it? <laughs> um, I, I can't think of what like put a number on the gap um, because there's a couple of things going on. One is that people are going to over report having voted. The other is that pollsters just get a lot more voters. Mm in their samples um so you know it's not dishonest if you're a voter and you're saying you're a voter but but there's tons and tons of those people in a, in a internet poll or in another poll yeah because um, if you don't vote you're less likely as well to want to do a survey about polling i guess so you know poll pollsters get the more politically interested people even if even if they try really hard to have a good sample don't they yeah, and, and loads of efforts put into trying to alleviate that problem. Tons and tons of money is spent, you know, an effort to try to make sure that there are proportions of samples that are less politically interested. I mean, certainly that's one of the good things about the BES panel is, is that it's so big. So, you know, if you think an average poll might be, say, a thousand people, um, you know, that would give you some headline figures on vote intention or whatever. Our internet panel waves are around 30,000 people. And so you're always going to be able to dig in and look at those people yeah. who do have lower political interest or political attention. Um, so, so, you know, there, there are ways to kind of try to make sure that your findings replicate among yeah. different types of voters. But it's really important. You know, I mean, this has been, turnout's been going up in some recent elections. But of course, it was going down over successive elections up until 2017. 2015 so it's a very important part of understanding political behavior is people's decisions not to engage with the political choices that are offered to them yeah i mean i i do wonder what turnout would be if the general media narrative around turnout was somewhat different because you know mm. at one in one respect turnout is not anything to break out the champagne over at, at british general elections but on the other hand, we did have that run of elections of, what was it, 2005, 10, 15, 17, four general elections in a row where turnout rose. Mm -hmm. And the story in the media about people's participation in elections during that period wasn't one of, oh, you know, isn't it great turnout is recovering or, you know, more people are voting than, than, than previously and so on. And, and, and there must be a little bit of an effect where if it's the thing that it sounds like everyone's doing, people are more likely to do it. But if the reports are all about how fewer and fewer people are doing it, you're also then less likely to do it. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of norm of voting kind of stuff. You know, this is the idea that there's a kind of a bandwagon effect that if you see lots of people doing something, you're more likely to do it. And I think it's quite tricky to, quite tricky to know how much that goes on, but I think it does happen. And I think one of the really important social norms around turnout is not just what you see in the country at large, it's who you see voting in your kind of, you know, your friendship circles and your family circles. So those kinds of 
those kind of social norms are, are hugely important, I think, at the, for the individual. You know, just do the members of your family vote or you're more likely to go out and vote yourself? Um, so, you know, whether or not the media's inattention to the increase in turnout, um, I mean, certainly, you know, think about the turnout being, you know, a large part of the story in the referendum as well in 2016, and then turnout, of course, higher since, you know, is there inattention to that? A factor in people choosing to vote I mean possibly at the margins I mean but of course why the attentions move so significantly is all the attention's been on Brexit mm. and you know the polarization the divides in the electorate and all of all of those important factors that have changed so significantly since 2016 so you can kind of understand it but yeah I think I think it's 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 a kind of if you like it's you could see it as a success story or you could see that more people are angry <laughs> and uh, motivated to turn out and 20 2001 was the real low point mm. but it was a foregone pretty much foregone conclusion election you know you can say that yeah. that maybe wasn't such an alarming election if you realize that you know many people were willing to come out and vote when it really counted so yeah i mean certainly the 2001 election seemed very preordained what the result was going to be and never you know yeah. it never it never really seemed in doubt so you can see why why yeah. people might be less motivated to vote but that that period of time does seem a long time ago now partly it is nearly 20 years ago but there was a degree of stability to british politics then um both in terms of you know one party winning multiple elections in a row um, but also there being a sort of three or in Scotland and Wales, three and a half party system that was relatively stable that had been in place for quite a while. The politics of the last few years are massively different. And I know one mm. of the books you've recently written is, you know, is uh, spot on in, in, in terms of looking at that particular issue. You know, electoral shocks, the volatile voter in a turbulent world. Um, what did you find with your co-authors in looking at that sort of evidence about you know, what's happening with, is it, is it true that politics is actually a lot more volatile than it used to be? And, and if so, what has caused that? Yeah, so it's been an extraordinary time, hasn't it? I mean, if, you know, we started off writing that book thinking that we were going to be writing a book about the decline of support for the two major parties and the rise of smaller parties that parties so um you know that's the book that we thought we were going to be writing and then of course you saw this huge increase in the two-party vote in 2017 and so you had those two elections with really remarkable volatility in terms of the party system um, and in terms of looking underneath that lots of volatility in terms of people switching between mm. parties between elections so, you know, that book then took a very long view and said, well, what, what are the long-term forces and what are the short-term forces that are really, really responsible for this increase in volatility, for this dramatic and dynamic period of change? And what we discovered was, you know, we all knew that there was a pattern of a long-term trend in terms of people being less attached to the main political parties over time. But what I don't think had been identified was that that was increasing people switching their support between political parties. So if you, if you looked at all of the panels over time in the British election study, and there, are, there were sort of smaller panels or just between election panels, um, you could see that this switching was really substantially increasing. 
Um, that long-term shift in party alignment wasn't, party attachment wasn't just, just to blame or just the responsible for that. We also saw that when people voted for smaller parties, they were more likely to switch afterwards. And so in a sense, it's a kind of um, reinforcing pattern where people were willing to move to other parties and they were willing to move in subsequent elections. But again, those long-term shifts weren't doing all of the work. They weren't doing all the explaining in terms of why we were getting very major changes. And what we accounted for then is very dynamic, very important changes, like big events, which we call electoral shocks. Um, one of them's the coalition government between 2010 and 2015 with the Lib Dems, one's the EU referendum, the global financial crisis, the Scottish independence referendum, and the very sharp increase in immigration that took place too. So these are kind of the kinds of things that you just notice, everybody knows about, you know, you can't escape them. They're very salient, therefore, and they also create political opportunities. They create a context in which parties will then compete over those things. And so those electoral shocks have also had a, made an important contribution to people switching in subsequent elections. And so, you know, it's that combination of those long-term changes in the electorate and then these dynamic shocks. And, and what's interesting is that because the electorate's more fluid now, or has been, um, because the electorate was exhibiting this real tendency or willingness to be much more fluid, much more changing over time, those big shocks could really make a massive difference, right? really make a more significant difference than when you had a very much more stable and aligned electorate that was more willing to stick with one political party. So it's a real combination. So if you're trying to extrapolate from that to what we should expect in the future, it sounds like there's a key question about, it feels like we've had a lot of those electoral shocks in the last few years. And there are, I guess, three possible explanations or three, you know, you could maybe mix and match between these three. So, but one would be simply that was just the luck of the draw, a bit like buses, random events don't come evenly spread. And therefore you do get a bit of clumping. We've happened to have had a clumping of electoral shocks in the last decade or two. But therefore, mm. we shouldn't, ex you know, it, we almost should expect a reversion to the mean, a reversion to electoral shocks being less frequent in future and therefore more stable politics. So that will be sort of explanation one. Explanation number two would be uh, that, no, the world is different. There are shocks that are happening more frequently um, and therefore, you know, don't expect We'll return to stability any any anytime soon. And, ver and version three, which you can sort of mix and match with the other two, I guess, would be to say that because, as you say, the electorate is more volatile, what counts as a big shock now, the, the threshold has almost been reduced. It has to be a less dramatic event to move people than it used to be because people are more willing to move and therefore maybe we should expect greater volatility in the future mm. and and actually perhaps the the financial crash of 2007 is a good example of that in that in one respect it was you know an economic downturn of a sort that has happened frequently to governments previously yet this time it seems to have had a much bigger um political impact so sort of which what mix of those three would you would you sort of pick as being the most likely to be true and hence are we likely to be seeing more shocks fewer shocks or just we don't know oh, we don't know is obviously the safer answer so i'm hope, hoping you'll pick no, one of the no, other no, two no, no. i i think this is i mean you know you can have my kind of off the 
have thoughts on this. I think it's a really, really good question. And one thing, the first thing I'd say is we're not measuring a shock by its implications, by its consequences. Mm. So we're not saying, oh, it's a shock because it has all of these yeah. impacts. So a shock is having an impact because parties are competing around it, it's salient, and because voters are yeah. able to shift. I mean, if you had a one-party system, mm. voters couldn't shift in response to a shock. I mean, it's yeah. only when you get political actors providing options. And this is, of course, relevant to the Liberal Democrats. <laughs> You've got a very kind of dominated system with two parties, and the two most viable parties are competing successfully around that shock, yeah. then it's difficult for another party to get yeah. a look in. When that's not the case, it's more likely that another party is going to be a beneficiary. Um, so we're not defining it by kind of, oh, the electorate's more fluid, therefore we're going to have more yeah. shocks. So I, so I sort of park that one. I think the other question is, is, um, is really, really interesting because, you know, if we think about kind of our shocks, so, so one part of the answer to this is our shocks completely exogenous. You know, do they just come from the outside? Yeah. Or are they part of the political system? So if you think about um, the financial crisis or the coronavirus pandemic, these are not caused by politics. Um, well, maybe you can argue the financial crisis. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the coronavirus pandemic is not caused by the political actors in, yeah. in the British party system. So in a sense, you know, then we have to look at those things and say, well, are financial shocks more likely? Are economic shocks more likely? And are pandemics more likely? You know, these kind of external things that aren't sort of endogenous to the political system. And pandemics do look like they're increasingly likely because of globalization and movement of people and, and how we're encroaching the natural world and so on. That's a bit depressing. Um, I don't know the answer to in economics, whether economic shocks Well, I, I think, I mean, that's where I think the financial crisis one is so interesting because you don't have to be that optimistic an economist to say that you know, the sort of profession of economics has got genuinely a lot better at understanding economic downturns and how to manage them. And mm. so if you look at the unemployment impact, for example, of the financial crisis, it was very painful for those who lost their jobs, but yeah. also quite muted compared to previous economic catastrophes. You know, if you look at the unemployment graph, you see a much, much smaller and shorter bump than you do for so I think from an economics perspective you could perhaps mm. have a degree of optimism that we are genuinely getting better at handling these things and the fallout the economic fallout is less however that didn't seem to reduce particularly the political fallout in 2007 so I, and there's a really important part of that particular shock which is about blame it's about the blame mm. game it's, so what what we argue is essentially is that shock was kind of politically accentuated so the electoral impacts were were a product of that happening, of course, but, but also very substantially a product of the quite successful competition of the Conservatives over Labour um, after, afterwards, after the 2010 election, that whole period between 2010 and 2015 was really about laying the blame and justifying mm. the, the laying of that blame on different actions vis-a-vis -vis austerity. So, so, you know, that was, a, that was a shock that had big implications because it was competed around politically. I think, I think the other shocks, you know, think about the independence referendum in Scotland, the Brexit referendum, um, the coalition government. I mean, we saw that with the decline of the two-party share coalition governments were looking more and more likely. So that, that doesn't look the case now um, because of the dominance of the two parties, but that could change in the future. 
I think, you know, some of these other shocks, you, you do sort of wonder if politically, because of the instability, because of the degree of change, that there could be more political mm. natural shocks. So, for example, the surge in support for independence in Scotland mm. being a sort of, a, you know, something that's in the background, mm. which, of course, is, is a worry for the Conservative government in the current context. We've got Brexit, you know, the, the, the nature of our relationship with the European Union to be established, a huge period of change coming, which can then lead to all sorts of other political con you know, consequences that we can't foresee. Yeah. Perhaps there will be more political shocks in the future. Whether or not the electorate's gonna be more volatile in the future, I think is up for debate. Mm. And, and that's because we've seen this quite significant realignment in the last two elections very much a result of Brexit shock and also, you know, longer term trends that preceded it, but, but very sub substantially because of the Brexit shock that's really increased the relationship, you know, the importance of all of those demographics that were important for how people voted for Brexit referendum, so education and age, and making that, you know, change in, at the individual level, but also at the geographic level, very substantial. So whether people are going to become more stable along kind of Brexit lines, um, then we get this <laughs> coronavirus shock very quickly, very, very quickly, which has the potential to unravel that. Yeah. Um, and then we have, of course, you know, the outcome of negotiations over trade relationship with the EU. So, yeah, <laughs> there's a potential for it to stabilise. And, um, and we saw volatility yeah. decrease in 2019. So we'll see. Yeah, a, a, a suitably hedged answer there for what is an impossible to answer <laughs> question, to be fair. So one of the things question. I guess that's different between Brexit and coronavirus is that I think yeah. with Brexit, there is, and this partly gets to, you know, a basic question about what determines election outcomes and the political success and failure of governments. With Brexit, there is an ideological choice. There is uh, mm. people who want yeah. us to be in Europe, and people want us to be out of out of Europe with coronavirus yeah. that everyone wants the disease to be beaten there isn't an ideological difference the choice is, a, is one about competence there and if you think mm. about say the economic knock-on effects from coronavirus a lot of people say like myself who used to spend lots of days in the week commuting into central London in my case you know commuting buying a coffee from Pret, a sandwich maybe from Leon. Um, that I will revert to doing a bit of in the future, but massively less, and that will really dislocate the economy. Sadly, lots of people who work for the likes of Pret, you know, already have and probably will continue to lose their jobs. Um, there will be other jobs created, because I guess I will end up spending more money on obscure secondhand books. So secondhand booksellers will do well out of my non-purchase of Pret coffees, I guess. Um, but I think generally speaking, all parties will say that sort of switch is one that needs to be handled well. And it's not that there will be some people, there will be some parties who are dying in the ditch to defend the future role of Pret no. and others who are really... And, and so that very much is an issue about competence, you know, which party ends up being best seen as best at managing that period of economic change. And I know that's something you dug into in another recent excellent book of yours, The Politics oh. of Competence, <laughs> um, which was looking at that extent to which it's those competence decisions that drive political yeah. choice. Yeah. 
yeah, there's there's an awful lot that could be said about um, if if I could I'd just respond to some of your thoughts mm. there before I go on to that. I mean, some at one point with the coronavirus handling that I wondered whether we were going to get into a sort of well, you know, do we prioritise the health of the nation or do we prioritise the economy? And I think what's what's been interesting about that that looks like very much a false dichotomy. Mm. You can't have a successful economy without it. So I think at one point, you know, I was thinking that, and then I think there's also been an element of sort of the libertarian arguments, you know, people becoming very uncomfortable with being told what to do. So I think there's an element of that. But I, but, but I think what you're saying is that, you know, some things are competent, some things are, are ideology. And I think that's, that certainly resonates with a lot of thinking in academic circles. I'd like to put that a little bit and try not to see things as kind of one or the other entirely, I think. I mean, certainly with Brexit, one of the, you know, it's always struck me with Brexit is that the choice was, yes, the choice very much about the kind of desired objectives, but the delivery was really going to be really, really important. And how that process is managed, what it delivers, whether or not we come out of the new relationships with the rest of the world, stronger or weaker in a, in a firmer financial footing or a weaker one, I think would be very substantially about competence, very substantially about management and delivery. So, so I've always thought Brexit had that element to it. Um, yeah, so in the, in the book, what we wanted to do, this is Will Jennings and I, was to really understand public opinion on this really important component of what's really a very important part of elections. I mean, you know, yes, you're going to vote for a party because you like what they stand for, do you think they're actually capable of anything? Do you th would you trust them to run the economy and to be in government? That's a very, very, very key part of any, any natural choice, even in an ideological world. And the same goes for leaders. You know, do they actually, do, do they inspire confidence? And, you know, do you like them, but also do you trust them? So we wanted to understand this very important part of electoral behaviour better and public opinion on it. And we really articulated um, what we found is kind of like different, different kinds of ways that competence is important. So one is the kind of big general concept of competence, what we call generalised competence. Essentially those kind of trends that you often see over an election period, you'll see a party start off trusted and liked and they're up in the polls and then they, that tends to decline over time. I wanted to understand how that happens being in government and how it is that people judge parties and governments, how it is that those kind of the negatives, what we found is the negatives count for more than the positives, those things kind of accumulate over time. And then we were looking also at those really big shifts and they do occur in how parties are trusted on issues. And again, that might perhaps is relevant to the Democrats on education. You know, when you think of a party, what do you think they stand, you know, what do you think they really care about? And um, so parties traditionally have different issues that they champion, different constituencies that they're catering more to, and that they're then trusted on those issues. Um, so a classic one would be Labour on the, on the NHS. Mm. Um, you know, Labour tends to be more trusted on the NHS. When they lose that trust on the NHS, they're in big trouble because they're not going to be as trusted on other things like crime or immigration and so on. So we wanted to look at all of the events, that all of the times when those things change across countries, across time, and, and, and essentially that's another story about shocks. So there are, you know, there are things that can really shift people's 
voters' perceptions of parties' trustworthiness and handling competence on the issues that they own, those the issues that we associate with them. That has, that has important implications. And, and then the, the third part was really saying, well, does it really matter if a government performs well? Because if you think about it, you know, we might think, well, the economy really is important, but do, do voters really notice what a government's doing, you know, over time, how it's doing on different policy issues? And so we were trying to understand that better. And some of those questions on, you know, do partisans, do people with those kind of more rigid um, attachments to political parties, do they ever shift? Do they ever update their evaluations? And we think competence is actually very important for that, for when people do, because there are some things that just cut through. And um, and moments like that, you know, you really can lose the support of people that you'd sort of pretty much relied on as your core vote before then. And I guess, I mean, you mentioned how the classic pattern is that government sort of ratings fall over time. Yeah. In a way that is weirdly different from how we evaluate the competence of other organisations. So if, say, a new mobile phone company were to launch, yeah. what happens is it builds up a reputation over time. And obviously first impressions can matter, but it's, you know, two years on, if, you know, mm. your friends that you know, some of them have been customers and they're happy with it and so on, and you might therefore have then acquired a good impression, you know, that you build your reputation mm. over time. Government seem to be almost the opposite, that you start with the reputation and it's just all downhill. At best, you can plateau for a while. <laughs> and maybe if there is a horrific event like a war or a pandemic you can even get a spike but essentially it's it's like we've maximized our belief yeah. in the government's competence on day one um which is really weirdly different from our attitudes in all the rest of life i don't know if you if you had any from looking at things like the bs data had any insight is it just that we get suckered by the promises and we have too much hope in government so we're, we're bound to be disillusioned what's what's going on there that it's, yeah, it's very different, I think. I mean, there's two respects in that, that, you know, governing is very different to supplying a service commodity. I mean, on the one hand, the thing that's really different is the promises, like you say, like you have an election campaign where, you know, you go and you tell everybody that it's going to be wonderful and amazing and that you're absolutely the bee's knees. And then there's somebody else who's competing with you over that and voters are judging between options and saying, well, on the face of it, you know, this these guys or these people look better than these ones where I'm going to put my faith in them. So it's a very different prospect. I think the other thing that's specific to politics is politics, you know, governments have to do a lot of things that people don't like. And, you know, so they are, you know, things happen, um, which governments then preside over and handle well or handle badly, which you just, you don't say about, you know, a company. Um, a company you know you go in there do you like what they're offering you yes you buy it no you don't you maybe you go away but as long as they're offering you pretty much what you're like you'll keep on going back there and of course you know I mean to sort of really extend the analogy you know a shop or a company that sells you something you know it's catering to a very specific market and works out what that market wants and keeps on giving it to them a government is, is governing for everybody of course um and there'll be winners and losers and what do the losers do? They can't go anywhere else. They can't nip to the other shop. <laughs> um, so they're stuck. They're stuck with the, you know, what that government is, is offering. So I think it's very different. Um, it's a nice, it's a very nice sort of thought exercise. Mm. It's a good question, but I yeah. think, I think it's I, must admit, I, I find your answer, I guess, maybe 
two thirds convincing. <laughs> <laughs> in the sense, I, I think there is something I think that which I don't know the answer to either. Um, but I, I think there is something that if you take the NHS, you know, the NHS is a massively important determinant of people's political views in Britain, and that is basically yeah. a service. So in that sense, a lot of people are judging the government on either perceived or actual service delivery. You know, if the NHS performs really well, they will think better of the government. If it performs badly, they will think worse. The NHS obviously matters much more than, say, the reliability of the mobile phone signal from my mobile phone operator. But it is sort of the same. It is, you, you, you're basically judging by a service. And likewise, when I'm deciding, so in fact, I've just bought a new monitor for my for, for use at home and so I read various reviews and I read you know went to various company websites and they were full of the equivalent of election promises about how amazing and brilliant you know my life is basically going to be if I choose their particular monitor I think there is a there is a a, a, dis, a difference about politics that we've in what we've just discussed we've maybe not quite got to the bottom mm. of because um, I mean, I'm quite happy with my monitor at the moment, but I can imagine that my happiness will increase over time if it turns out that, oh, yeah, this, you know, really has made my life better, that it will increase over time. But a government that has you know, years of economic boom, you know, even Tony Blair, you know, all the way through those economic boom years in between 97 and the Iraq war, you know, his ratings held up remarkably well, but it was still basically a long term downward track that his ratings were on. Um, there is something weirdly different about politics. Yeah, I'm just trying to think. I mean, one of the things that is similar, I think, is brand loyalty. Mm. Because, you know, what you're saying is essentially, like, say if you bought an Apple product, you know, people might see, even mm. see themselves as Apple purchases. Mm. Apple, you know, yeah. they're really into these products. And they, they and certainly Apple and, you know, well, they, they, they tried to play on that, didn't they? Like, are oh, you a kind of cool, liberal, <laughs> yeah. tech? the apple user or not and and i think you know there is an element that's similar to that in politics which is identifying with political parties being once you identify with political parties being more likely to stick with them being more likely to give them the benefit of the doubt to you know evaluate them positively especially when you see the alternative as being absolutely beyond the pale and that's of course what's happening in america right now that the differences between parties are significant is so big and you know, the leap for someone to go over to the Democrats is just so huge because you've got this just two, you know, two-party system, yeah. big, really a lot of polarisation, a lot of deeply entrenched partisanship amongst those people that, that are strongly Republican or Democrat. So, so I think there's an element of that in politics where people do become brand loyal. But, you know, thinking about the Tony Blair government, you know, where, where, Labour's, where Labour struggled was after the financial crisis and Gordon Brown after the Iraq war. You, know, you had these sort of very, you know, these huge moments where people decided that's a red line for me. And, you know, I think with your monitor, <laughs> it crashed every third Thursday, you would get pretty- Yeah, I'll, I'll get quite annoyed with it quite quickly. I, yeah. guess what, I guess what's also different with elections is that you are, although voting is, is voluntary, so it's a voluntary choice, yeah. but it is sort of a forced choice every few years, or if you've got, you know, you're an area with local council elections and like also in a way every year, you know, regularly you mm. are given a piece of paper which basically says, do you want to change your mind or not? And in order to change your mind, all you need to do is to put a cross 
in a slightly different place on that piece of paper yeah. in a way that um, I am have fairly ambivalent uh, attitudes towards my bank um, because they stuffed up in a really big way a couple of years ago, but I've not changed my bank account. Because oh, it, yeah, yeah because actually, I, when I when I did change a bank account a couple of years prior to that, um, it was okay. Actually, the process it's a bit like root canal, you know, at the dentist. <laughs> the process these days is a lot better than it used to be, and it's a lot it's a lot easier, a lot less painful. But a lot of us have still that folk memory of when changing bank account or having root canal treatment was a complete nightmare. Um, but <laughs> but, but, it, but it's a lot harder. It's not, you know, if I was to get a ballot through the post or to have to go to my local polling station tomorrow to vote for which bank I stick with, I think I'd almost certainly vote to change in a way that actually inertia. Yeah. Maybe having said this out loud to you now, I will guilt myself into changing my bank account in the near future. Otherwise, <laughs> inertia will win. Well, out. Maybe, maybe, maybe that maybe. is the difference. It's the beauty of the simplicity of the choice that you have when a ballot paper is is thrust into your hand. Yeah, I I think you know the act of voting, of course, an act of voting for a political party is very different. It's it's pretty hard for some people to change parties, though. I mean, if you think you know if growing up mm. my parents generation where their parents always mm. voted one way where that was really that really said something about you you know that really said something about your values and you know voting for the other guys was yeah. just seen as you know was almost a moral choice and i think that's what we do see and like in, in the us for very entrenched republicans yeah. it's almost a moral choice and moving is is pretty pretty uncomfortable actually um, and it becomes a huge part of who you are in in the way uh, the analogy i sometimes use for people who are not who are not that involved in politics is you know me being a liberal democrat is a bit analogous to someone being say an arsenal football club fan yeah in fact actually the arsenal analogy is probably quite good in terms of you think that Arsenal payday was yeah. and so on but, but you know people don't switch you know people well some people switch which club they support but it tends to be due to a really significant external shock like if you move to the other end of the country and therefore you maybe also start half you know supporting the the team in your because, because you're socialized into that from a very young mm. age and you might inherit it from your parents mm. And, you know, that's why going back to volatility and alignment, that's why that's so important. Yeah. Because, you know, if you're in a world where everybody supports two football teams and they've done that for generations, yeah. and that's a very important part of their identity. And then you move into a world where there's a more football clubs yeah. and also people have already switched football clubs and they don't identify with the football club anymore, then they're, they're more likely to support different teams on different occasions. You know, it's a very important shift and the weakening of that sort of socialization effect as younger generations come into the electorate, not inheriting the, the football team <laughs> of their parents, you know, the political football team of their parents is a very important part of that process. We show that in the Electoral Shocks book. And so, you know, thinking about the Lib Dems, you know, if you've got that environment where people, are, you know, as long as you're offering something that they want and that you're appealing and you, you look like you've got, you're competent, you're running things well, you're offering something that nobody else is offering, then in that kind of more fluid marketplace, then there's more potential. There's also, of course, more potential for losing it all. 
Yes, that perhaps neatly sums up the Lib Dem experience for the last decade or so. But um, I, as you say, I think there is, looking at this particularly from the Lib Dem perspective, a, mm. a sense of opportunity, at least. Maybe hope is go, putting it slightly too strongly because it's an opportunity that might not be realised. But there is definitely that yeah. opportunity with a turbulent electorate, with a depolarised, that, that, that sort of lack of you know lifelong commitment to parties in the way that we used to have that there's more opportunity for somebody to break in or to break back in um so just yeah. finally as we are recording this voting has just started in the liberal democrat leadership election so thinking about what you've said about competence and volatility and so on without mm. you know plumping for a particular candidate but is is there any yeah. sort of general advice you would give lib dem members as to what they should be thinking about when deciding which candidate to vote for? I think, um, you know, one thing it's worth saying is, you know, just because there's been more volatility doesn't mean there will be going forward. And, and you recognise that it very much depends. There might be an opportunity, but it very much depends on how that's realised. Yeah. That's not just about the Lib Dems, what the Lib Dems do, of course, that's what the other two major parties are doing and other parties as well. Um, at the moment, the Labour and the Conservative vote is you know, strongly predicted on this second dimension, this dimension that's more to do with Brexit and liberal values. That's quite tricky for the Liberal Democrats, isn't it? Because essentially, where the Liberal Democrats were able to sort of compete in a 2D, two-dimensional space and cleave off votes amongst people who were more liberal in orientation and had those different values that they didn't see articulated with the two major parties, more likely to, the two major parties are essentially competing on that dimension as well. So, you know, that that's tricky, but it but it, so then the opportunity comes with what changes in politics. And I think that in that context, it's really quite hard, isn't it? Because you're trying to say, well, let's think about the next general election. Where are the Labour Party going to be and where are the Conservative Party going to be? And where therefore is the Liberal Democrat opportunity to cleave votes from that, that space? So it's really, so I think that's quite hard. Um, I think one of the really important things for the Liberal Democrats is, is of course, to think about the electoral system. So I don't, I mean, this doesn't necessarily apply to which leader, but the, the geographic spread of the Lib Dem vote in 2019 compared to the constituencies one was really, really stark. Um, so, you know, the Lib Dem vote was up, it just didn't happen in the places where it needed to happen in a concentrated way as possible. Um, so obviously making sure that the person really identifies that and understands, you know, that essentially under first past the post, you just have to concentrate the Liberal Democrat vote. Um, and I think, you know, the other question for me was, would be, who do people think are, is, is most likely to appeal to those people that have voted Liberal Democrat in the past? Because of that, you know, that pattern that we've identified, whereas if you voted for a party in the past, you're more likely to switch in the future. And also those people who voted Liberal Democrat in the past were comfortable voting Liberal mm. Democrat in the past, wanted to vote Liberal Democrat in the past. And so there is that, that's the opportunity that I would see is those erstwhile Liberal Democrat voters. Um, who, is, who is the person who's going to most successfully appeal in a sense to the, the, the these are, who's the candidate that Nick Clegg's voters would have preferred? Um, 
when the Liberal Democrat vote was, you know, what that is highest, and also where some of that efficiency also was was better. And it's it's really tough, you know, so much is changing in terms of the geographic pattern of support. Yeah. Right. And, and and in a way you can interpret that rather neatly uh, in two different ways, one of which perhaps points more towards one of the candidates and the other to the other <laughs> candidate, because um, although Nick Clegg is often seen as having taken the party somewhat to the right, his, yeah. his, ele- his electorally most successful period was really one where the party was in many ways pitching more for centre-left votes. And so yeah. I think that that analogy one could draw, you know, two two different conclusions from <laughs> as to what the best route is for the party in the future, which I think makes it, as, as you say, an important one to think about because there is quite a strategic choice built in there. And and perhaps another way of thinking about it is on that geographic distribution of the Lib Dem vote of the 2019 election was we did do a lot better at getting d- good second places. And so there's a question about should we double down on that to try and turn yeah. more of those good seconds into firsts or should we worry about those places that used to vote Lib Dem but are still not back to even being a good second place. Um, oh, and, yeah. and, and again, there's there's an argument, you know, both ways, you know, both ways. Yeah. That. So, um, and it's, I, I, I'd say this is an almost impossible question as well because it, it depends on two things. Like one, one, it depends on Brexit. So a lot of those former Liberal Democrat constituencies were more strongly leave voting and of course have been more, um, the Conservatives appealed more to many voters in those constituencies because of that. And so it's that increase in that second dimension that's really been unhelpful for the Liberal Democrats. And so that's the big unknown. That's, the, that's one really massive unknown is how does that realignment, does it continue or does it do you have to then compete in that realigned world or do you have to compete in a world where the realignment softens? I think the other really big unknown is what does Keir Starmer say <laughs> and promise? And where does he stand? Does he appeal to the more sort of socially conservative voters in the red wall seats or does he go for the more liberal voters? Um, it, you know, where did, what, what's his policy offerings? So those two things are really um, unknown. But basically also what you've got to do, of course, is have the ability to to get people's attention and get noticed and, and, and be personally appealing. So that's important too. Yeah. I, I admit it's a very hard choice, I think. Uh, well, the good thing for listeners is that we will be, I will be returning to this topic next week in the next episode of this podcast when I will be talking with Tim Bale about the recent research report uh, published by the think tank UK in the Changing Europe, which very much looks at this emergence of a different geographic spread of support for the Lib Dems. Um, so I've added to my notes to make sure I ask Tim his views on whether the values of doubling down on that emerging areas of strength versus putting emphasis into the traditional areas of strength uh, that haven't yet recovered. But thank you so much for that, Jane. That's been absolutely fascinating. I will include links to both of those books that we've mentioned in the show notes. Uh, and people can follow Jane on Twitter at Prof Jane Green myself at Mark Pack and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. So do look in the show notes for all of those follow-up links. And if you like listening, please do tell others about this podcast or make a donation to help with the costs of running the podcast by visiting nevermindbarcharts.com 
and picking the option in the menu at the top left. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for your time, Jane, and hear you all next time. Thank you.